Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in my backyard after recording a winging it session on the Diet of Worms that I thought went pretty darn well. And uh, we are going to be talking today with Pastor Brian Dobler, who is joining us in my backyard. Brian, you want to say hi? Hi. How's it it going? It's going quite well. And uh, Brian, you are doing a PhD in missiology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne. Is that the case? Yes, I've been uh, going there for a couple of years now. I'm, I suppose, halfway through my studies on that. It's a missiological program run by Dr. Detlef Schultz. Well, excellent. So what we're going to be talking about, since we have Pastor Dobler with us, um, and as we've mentioned before, he teaches at Wisconsin Lutheran High School here in Milwaukee, which is a diverse school. Um, Milwaukee has school choice, meaning that Milwaukee residents uh, can apply to schools of their choices um, to receive state funds to go there. Um, so Wisconsin Lutheran High School has tuition students, it has school choice students, um, and uh, has a rather diverse population, and he is... Uh, in his experience, having served in parishes that had rather diverse backgrounds, too, or at least the areas around them, going to be helping us to talk about missiology, what that is, how do we think about the gospel um, and how it relates to other cultures, how do we translate it, things of that nature, maybe what makes Christianity an exportable religion um, and one that just by nature needs to cross um, boundaries, uh, boundaries of time, uh, demographic boundaries, economic boundaries, cultural boundaries, racial boundaries, all of these things. I We are joined as well, Pastor Dobler and I, by Mike um, here in the backyard. And we also are uh, going to remind you we are part of the 1517 Podcast Network. Um, if you haven't checked out some of their podcasts, please do. Uh, they have a growing number of podcasts. Not every podcast might be for everyone. Uh, check out, you know, the different ones. See what you like. If you don't like something, move on. Find your way back here, we hope. Uh, not every one of their podcast uh, podcasting people probably think we're the greatest thing in the world. Um, and everyone has different tastes. But uh, check out 15-something, the podcasting network. Also check out, we referenced in the last Winging It session, the Heidelberg Disputation. And 1517 with their blog series is going to have each week now, um, two theses of the Heidelberg Disputation as the um, 2018 is the 500 500th anniversary of that, um, blog posts on that. I have theses 27 and 28, which are the final two, so they save the worst for last. Um, but check those out, and you can now listen to their blogs as well. What is it called? A blogcast? I can't remember, Mike. Um, but you can choose if you're at work, something, you don't want to have to read it. You can listen as well. Um, but we are going to be talking today about missiology. Mike, I completely forgot to ask if we have the disclaimer somewhere. I can do it. Um, All right, this is Mike's take on the disclaimer, which makes it maybe somewhat less official. But we'll in, please don't throw anything in that's going to get us in trouble. I know that that's a temptation at this point when you're freewheeling, Mike, but we'll let Mike give us our disclaimer now. So this is a podcast, um, and uh, it's, it's not, not really a big deal. Uh, we're kind of idiots, um, but I think we have something to offer. If you disagree with us, that's fine. It doesn't mean that it's the end of the world. Feel free to email us. We may or may not email back. Thank you. 
All right, that brings us to our scripture narrative today. We have not had a scripture narrative in quite a while. Um, as I mentioned in the Winging It series, Mike and I have been recording a bunch of stuff out in my backyard late at night, and so the quality uh, somewhat shows depending on how late we're recording. Uh, sometimes it's been we, after... We don't have light either, so... Right, and some days it's been after long days in the sun. Mike is building a... Uh, or uh, have you finished building a, a pergola? Done. And I have been on the softball diamonds and, or and baseball. A de- and a pool deck. Nice. Done. And I've, I've uh, as Pastor Doble can see, been mowing my lawn a lot. Yes, it's um, beautiful. Yeah, but I've also been on the it's diamonds. Been, it's been much higher. <laughs> yeah, it has been worse. Uh, but I've been on the diamonds a lot. And so a lot of the times you're getting us after... Uh, Long days in the sun, but I feel today we're somewhat both rested. Tan, tan is not the right word. Red is probably. Uh, I'm not as tired as I've been, though, so I, I'm optimistic. Me and uh, Pastor Dobler looks like he just woke up. He looks fresh as can be. I'm ready to go. Fresh as a daisy. Um, but what we're going to talk about for the scripture narrative is simply what has been called the Great Commission, and that's for other people to discuss if that's the greatest title for it. Um, But I'll just read from Matthew 28. These are the closing verses. And we'll take 16 through 20, and then I'll kind of toss them out there. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Holy Spirit. Man, you can tell... There isn't much light. The and Father I'm, comes first. Right. I'm reading off my phone and I'm terrible at that. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's the ESV. You can tell I uh, went through the system a little bit with the NIV. Um, but we call that the Great Commission. And this is Jesus uh, at the end of his ministry. And this is speaking to the apostles. I think it's good to point out. Um, to the 11 apostles gathered, but talking about what the mission of the church as a whole, the church that they would establish in various places, and they would uh, establish commission um, pastors in, that, uh, in those places as well, but what the work of the church will be. Any thoughts? Let's not get way into missiology, but just the Great Commission itself, and what makes uh, Christianity a somewhat unique religion when it comes to that. Certainly, uh, maybe one thing to think about is when we hear all nations, we are, uh, our ears think of uh, nationalism. So we think of the different flags and the different boundaries and stuff like that. But for them, uh, it's all people. So ethnicities, um, different languages, different, it's, it's the nation is Israel. The Gentiles are the nations. Right. So it just has a little bit of a different feel there, but. It's quite remarkable when you think about it, and and it's starting to come out out of the uh, certainly in the Old Testament era. Um, you know, gods are tied to a specific people and a sp- and and really a specific place too. Um, and so it, th- that's not so much the case after you know uh, Alexander the Great comes and tries to import his his way of thinking, his Hellenism, and then. Um, you know, you have the Roman Empire and stuff like that, but it's still quite a remarkable thing in a non-globalization world, even though Rome really had, had, had made things, uh, well, the, the first globalization, if you could say, it's still kind of a remarkable thing. Still this idea that a deity was located either in a people or a place. And so that, that really is, uh, something, unless you know the his, history of that, you, you don't really... 
appreciate what a bold statement that was. And that this message is something exportable, it's translatable, um, it's something that can be taken beyond boundaries, I think is important too. Um, you know, the notion that this is a message that can and should resonate with all. Um, I think later Pastor Dobler hopefully will bring out for us the care we have to take to help make sure that that can be the case. There's obstacles to be overcome. But, uh, you know, Jesus is kind of saying this faith is going to be exclusive by being inclusive. Right? It's it's not going to be something that is just uh, for a few people and then everybody else, you know, you do your own thing and you're good. It's actually for all people, and it's the only truth about God that is for all people. I think the 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 for alls in the you know so-called Great Commission really bring that out. It centers everything on Christ, all authority, uh, all nations. Of course, He's the the Creator of of all peoples. Um, you have all teachings, uh, which really brings you right back to the gospel proclamation, uh, and then that He's with us always as we bring that gospel to the, to the nations. It, there's that, it translates because it's all-inclusive uh, and all-centered on Christ and what he teaches. And, and then, of course, the means of grace there, that specifically the teaching of the Word and then baptism, too. Um, <clears throat> that uh, the, there's specific means of how this is going to be, going to be accomplished, right? Um, and uh, not only that, too, but in, in our own world where by being inclusive, we are kind of allowing exclusivity where we say, um, <clears throat> your religion over there and your religion over there, we're just going to include this in some sort of kind of pluralistic Coexist. pantheism. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> and, and that's kind of the, I, I like what you said there, Wade, you're going to be inclusive by being exclusive or however you put it, that the trend um, which I think is maybe even breaking up because of, I don't know, reality. You just can't have Sharia law and and uh, in the middle of a, a, a historically Christian-dominated culture. It's just not going to work. Um, but but it's almost the reverse, right? And so Christianity, even it's in missiology, is quite countercultural. And it's, and it's capable of existing in numerous cultures as well. One thing I know there too, Mike, and you kind of got at it, is that Jesus mentions baptizing and then teaching. But he says, make disciples and how baptize and teach. And I would just briefly say, as a Lutheran, um, that's something I always emphasize with my people, is that for many um, who are brought in the Christian faith as youths, they're going to be bought in, youths, that sound like my cousin Vinny, um, <laughs> they're going to be brought into the Christian faith through baptism, but then they are going to be instructed and this becomes the normal pattern in places where Christianity um, is established. That pattern might be different in some places where you go in the mission field and you're going to teach and then baptize. But I think it's uh, helpful how Jesus puts this in that it leaves leeway for both ways. Someone comes into the faith through the word and then is then baptized. Um, but then a family, a whole household is brought into the faith and they are baptized and then taught. And I think it really ties together the work of the church and of a pastor with those uh, that he encounters, um, that it's not just one or the other, but catechesis is a baptismal thing and the two uh, exist together. Uh, I'll leave it to the two of you if you have anything else. Otherwise, I'll, uh, I'll be quiet till the free-for-all. Well, I think we'll move it to the free-for-all and we'll pick up a lot of these themes, of course, in the main topic. 
And we're back uh, for our free for all, where we, what does Peter say? Do something with a great question. Something, something, something. Peter, you should come back. Um, All three of us are parish pastors who have now been institutionalized, (laughs) where we're now teaching, and I think we 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 love it, but also miss the parish. And so maybe kind of a unique perspective when we uh, go back to school. Uh, in September, and what are we looking forward to? Maybe what we're not looking forward to as school starts. Um, I, I always, I as what's a, the biggest grind as we get ready for school that maybe even isn't yeah. a teaching thing, but just I always got excited about in the parish. Really got excited about September. Um, my favorite season, football starts up, but also people started coming back to church again on a regular basis. And so you're kind of re-energized and uh, always look forward to fall. Uh, Now that I'm teaching, um, I look forward to fall in a different way just because then I can let go of the guilt of not doing more in the summer towards teaching. I just get into it and you just, you just get going. And this was for, for you, Brian, it's not, this was, this is your second year for second year. Yeah. So this is the first summer for both of you. I know my first summer too was somewhat guilt ridden of a, you know, where do I show up? Where do I log in? What exactly am I doing to make sure that I'm proving I'm doing my job? And and now it's uh, where I get to this point of the summer and I go, I should probably think about school now, you know? Well, um, and, and just, you know, moving, new house, family in a different situation. Yeah, that you're still trying, you're still trying to catch up from, from a move. It takes a couple of years. And so I know that next summer will be, I'll have a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah, summer proved to be a, a strange thing. I mean, it was extremely busy in its own way, and yet you had some flexibility in your schedule that I've never had before, and that caused, especially beginning of July, some some strange things going on in my own mind. That you just, you know, you're used to always, you know, you get into the grind of the school. There's there's always something the next day, and you don't have that the sun in the summer, and uh, that you was almost a, can't catch up during the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you have to be used. Even as being a pastor, you obviously have to be self-motivated because you don't have a boss hanging hanging on your on your neck um, every day. You got you know two hundred bosses, but they're not there every day making sure you punch punch a clock. So um, it, it can be difficult because there are things that uh, um, can take your time or whatever. But back to your original point of what what are you not looking forward to? You want I, me to go first, Mike, or well, do you want to go first? I, you, I'm sure you are like syllabi and stuff like that i don't mind that going, stuff yeah. i don't mind that stuff and by the way i will send you the the dates for monday wednesday friday and tuesday thursday for your schedule Thank i don't you. mind doing those you're charts. stealing what i hate yeah <laughs> so i already know what you what you don't want to do um i'm already even done with that basically that stuff's easy for me to just get out you're of the depressing way me. well here's here's why because it doesn't take any brains to do that and so i'm like well i'll do that <laughs> and, I'll put off, feel bad. and i'll put off the brain i'll put off the smart <laughs> stuff for later where you're like i'm gonna dig into whatever book or whatever and then at the last second you're like oh crap i should do a syllabus you know i would say i mean the the, the thing i enjoy is really um each year trying to re-examine the books i use and and to read through stuff and see how i can plug new stuff in and I try with each course to rebuild it a little bit whenever I can. So it is fun to me to work through a text and be like, how am I going to break this up? But you kind of stole my thunder, Mike. I absolutely hate plugging in the dates 
for the syllabus, um, whether it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday. I mess it up every semester. I have like, um, you know, Thanksgiving in spring <coughs> or Easter in fall. And then the students will act like it's the end of the world. Like, well, what are we going to do now? Um, and, uh, and just getting it in, like, I feel like a part of me dies for having to, like, send in my official final documents for stuff. Part of me feels like my syllabus and Christian freedom should just be when I show up that day, what I do. And, uh, and so the idea of, um, I get really anxious about, I know I can talk for four hours this day on this thing. If I get behind, what do I schedule as the next thing that I can maybe, uh, steal some time from or whatever the case might be. So I would say crafting the course in a realistic way because I seldom find um, that I have too much time. I often find I don't have enough time. And I oftentimes, when I pick up my books or the readings, these are things in many ways that have touched me or are very important to my academic formation that I really want a student to enjoy and grasp whether that be in ethics, some of the fiction we do that I just really want them to get into like I do, or um, in a Luther course, uh, you know, just something I think they can't, they shouldn't be able to just get around, but they got to wrestle with. So I would say absolutely, um, you know how I plan, Mike. Um, it would be syllabi. Um, I don't care with syllabi about the other stuff besides the dates. If anybody's ever read my syllabi, they know that they're full of, Warnings for students about, you know, not being so concerned about an A that you end up. I, I would describe your, your syllabi as passive aggressive in certain points. Very much so, I think. But also forthright. Yes, honest. Yeah. Honest. Um, the other thing is, I would say... Wondering how long I'm going to go before I dress like a homeless guy. Like, I've really been wrestling with this semester. Should I even wear clericals at all? Well, or now, should I just go right to where I'm going to end up at about a month in? So, Wade, <laughs> Wade, it's a, Wade starts out with clerical collars last year. I think you made it two weeks. I think you made it two weeks. It was my worst year, yeah. So, and then that second week, of course, My first two years, Labor I made Day. it almost the full year. And then um, by the... By uh, final exam week, you're in sweatpants. So I'm not going to deny that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a slow downward, downward spiral. Spiral, but um, um, actually, Wade Wade doesn't have uh, final exams, written final exams. He hey, has. Um, uh, we might have registrars who listen who don't need to. Okay, but I, I was going to give you a compliment that you bring your students in for oral exams. Yeah, I do do that. And this is good. We can talk about that. It's fantastic. I, so my office is right next to Wade's, and so I overhear the conversations, and it's just, he, he must be a good teacher because they really are engaged with the texts, uh, especially it's it's fun to hear their answers and the questions you ask for ethics and stuff. And I'm not going to lie, when the next group's out in the in the lobby, and if I have to go out, I go, um, don't forget about the lobster and just walk away. <laughs> <laughs> they know it's coming anyway, so it's not like they're, they're, they didn't have time to prepare anyway, but it certainly is uh, a good way to teach, and I don't think I could pull it off, but, um, he, but he, he is very relaxed 
um, in his clothing choices at that time of the year. Probably, I'll admit. Yeah, yeah, but it's I, it's it's uh, the students love Wade, so yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll let Brian go, and then Mike can let us know what 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 gets on him. Uh, just going into the second year, it feels uh, a lot better having one year under the belt. Uh, my big thing for going in this year is uh, reworking one course that I teach on 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 uh, Christian doctrine and church history, uh, but also starting uh, an apologetics course uh, for the first time in uh, for for Wisco's history. So that's been a bit exciting. I like doing the the planning. I like uh, drawing together the resources. Uh, the big thing still... Uh, just the, to interrupt, brief, how many of your courses this year will be the same as last year? Just the one. Wow. So that's a challenge. Sorry, yeah. go ahead, though. But, but I only have, I have the one new one. And, um, you know, the the big thing, especially I think maybe at the high school level, maybe it's true with, with you guys at the college level, uh, is uh, just hitting that sweet spot with the kids. Uh, we have a, a diversity. So you, you walk in with all these big plans. And uh, you have this diversity of kids, uh, you know, Lutheran, non-Lutheran, super smart, some not quite so. Human, alien. Yeah, human, alien, weirdos, all kinds of stuff uh, thrown into the mix. And, and usually you find out about day one uh, that most everything that you planned uh, needs to be reworked and you're reworking it on the fly. So uh, that's the grind. Uh, and, and, you know, two to add to that grind, you know, <laughs> day one is followed by day two. Uh, immediately the next day, so you, you're. And that is different for you. I mean, your class is you have five days a week, yep. with the same group. Yeah, five days a week, same group. Uh, and I think that would be. I think three days a week is about the most a student should spend with me. I think five days would be brutal. Yeah, just getting into class every day, and you know, in high school too, they have. I mean, not only is it on you. Uh, where you're you're every day with the kids, but they're every day with you, and they're coming out of six, seven classes apiece every single day. People. Yeah, that's brutal. Yeah, so that's the biggest challenge. I mean, you know, you got the diversity of kids and keeping it lively and adjusting on the fly uh, for what they're able to handle and what they're able to do. But uh, we, we got some exciting things this year. Just even getting into you know missiology, where we're going to be looking at um, church history through the eyes of mission. Uh, church doctrine as well through the eyes of mission and then the apologetics course fits right into that I got uh, I think a number of students that are looking forward to that so it's kind of an exciting year too even though I'm still flying by the seat of my pants kind of being a rookie in the in the uh, institution world rather than in the parish do you plan uh, to strike a student this year have you struck a student yet uh, a few times but uh, <laughs> no, just, don't say that <laughs> <laughs> Brian would never do that no Brian never. has not hit a student no. Not yet. Um, Ever. Ever. But you, a question I have for you is, I know for me, I have one intro class. Um, but otherwise, my classes vary each year very much by the students I have in them. Um, I have to imagine for you, you'll have a variation <laughs> in a different way of, the, unless I'm mistaken, you have one class, then the next class, then the next class. It's not like... I have a mix of sophomores through seniors each year. Um, I'm guessing, and, and you're guessing too because it's new for you, but you must really be in a position to get a sense for the um, the corporate character of each class as you do this, or or will you have a big variety? Yeah, no, I don't. I um, This year, it's a little bit different than last year, and, and, and somewhat thankfully so for my personality, but I have just juniors for the doctrine and then just seniors. 
Uh, so, you know, I won't have, yeah, you get really focused on your juniors, you get really focused on the seniors. I won't have to uh, know too much about what's going on in the sophomore world or the freshmen and things like that, which, again, is good. They've had a little bit with uh, other teachers. If they they've come made in. it to you now, they at least have some sense yeah. of yeah. Sophomores are the worst, right? They, they weed yeah. them out. I don't know. I've never had a sophomore, and I, I think I'm thankful for them. All right, Mike, what do you got for us? You know, I'm just, uh, I am less... Mike is wearing, by the way, a Detroit Tigers colored polo shirt. My my youngest daughter, Sophia, thinks I look terrible in orange. Uh, As a Tigers fan, I think you look good. I think I I can pull off orange. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, though. So, um, I'm not... I'm not as excited as I thought I would be. I, I think I'm a little uh, apprehensive this year. Uh, thought I would be in a better place. <clears throat> um, You're taking more some prepared. jumps as far as courses go, though, yeah? We, well, n- not too bad. I mean, I only only have one new course. Well, if you count the college introduction course, but uh, uh, just the life and thought of Luther and that one scares me a little bit just because the other courses I could fake it. I could, And I don't mean fake it. As, I mean I can be passionate about it because I've thought about these things. Where Luther, it's it's going to be a little bit... Uh, I'm not at home with it as I am with worship well, and scripture. The bar has been set very low for you, though. Well, <clears throat> no, quite high. Uh, Wade teaches that we're going to hopefully do this every other year. I'm very excited about this course, uh, The Life and Thought of Luther. Um, uh, and just... Just a shout out to you. Uh, I'm following your 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 pattern where you read two biographies and then about 400 pages of his theological writings. It's a, it's quite a bit. I mean, it was more than we did. But I right? think th- I think the back and forth will be good, Mike. To be honest, because I think uh, both of us have different wheelhouses, and I think between the two, it'll really balance out. Um, when it comes to worship and hymnody or, or things like that versus, uh, I mean, I think they get really sick of me with bondage of the will. So I think it'll be a good thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm very, very excited about it. It's a full class. It's I think we're up to 28 or 29 students. And so I'm a little worried about how engaged they're going to be, uh, how I can engage them. But we'll see. We'll see. I And so I'm a little apprehensive, but I think that's probably what I'll be Every August is just a little bit, that's my nature, just to be a little bit nervous about how it's going to go. But uh, um, I have my syllabi done, so I got nothing left to which, do but which worry. Which really <laughs> disappoints me because <laughs> mine will be done, and then they'll be sent to the provost secretary. And then I will proofread them and realize all the stuff I had wrong in them. You know, it's funny um, that I've, I've learned this lesson that you really should proofread things a couple times before you send it in. I've learned this lesson, but I don't follow this lesson ever. Yeah. And I'm 40, and I still don't. I just go, done, send. I just I have a hard time putting a lot of time into something that I know students don't read. Demonstrably so, but the number of questions I get <laughs> throughout the semester, like, I'm sorry. I mean, how can I, do you know what my grade is in this class? And it says in there, I am not responsible for tracking your grade. You know, it just, and so then after, or it's, well, some of it, it says in there, you will be deducted grade points if you ask. This is, this is the passive aggressive nature of Wade in his syllabi. He says, you will be deducted a grade, whatever, whatever, how many points of your grade. If you ask me about what your grade is, Yeah. (laughs) I can't believe you get away with that. Clearly the administration does not read your syllabi.
And we're back for our main topic, which is missiology. We're uh, privileged here, as you know, to have uh, Brian Dobler, a professor at Wisconsin Lutheran High School here in Milwaukee, who is getting his uh, Ph.D. from uh, Concordia. Giving or getting? I think you said giving. Getting. Getting. Yeah. Earning. Getting. Earning. Well, his. Uh, you know, when someone or someone says to me, "Oh, you got a doctor or whatever," do, you know, do you want people to call you doctor? And I say, I don't say, "Well, I earned it." I say, "Well, I paid for it," because that's probably <laughs> more accurate. But anyway, um, so earning his PhD um, from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and you're in your second year or third year. Uh, I've, I've completed two years, and at the rate I'm going, I have about another two years of classwork. So why don't we start out with this? What is missiology? And maybe explain a little bit. What are your classics classes like? Do you do you go through the history of missiology and talk about Cyril and Methodius and stuff like that? Stop. He's smart. He's getting, toss, a, he's getting a PhD. He's smart. What Stop is missiology? it. What is missiology? And then you can and then we'll you can ask another question. continue into what your studies are and what kind of classes you're taking. All right. Uh, missiology, of course, just starts with uh, mission, a uh, nice Latin word, uh, means uh, to send. A uh, big popular word in missiology is uh, the missio dei. So missiology is the study of the missio dei, the sending of God. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a neat term because it really helps to, to ground theology. You have, um, it starts with God sending his son, Jesus Christ, of course, to be our Savior. Uh, you also have the thought of God sending uh, the Holy Spirit uh, through the gospel, through the means of grace, uh, to work saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then ultimately, I think what we th- think about when missiology is then, you know, but it has to flow out of that. Uh, it's God sending his church uh, into the world uh, with that message. So uh, missions recognizing that and mission missiology is looking at, you know, the study of how does uh, the church carry out that sending mission of God uh, to bring the gospel uh, to all nations um, in order to, to bring faith to them. So maybe with that... Um Missio or, or the sending is a, an interesting word because I think, Mike, if I'm not mistaken, the word mass, we think, perhaps comes from that, the sending out. We're of not the quite of the, sure, but yeah, the, the mass is ended, go. But there's, a, there's an aspect to Christianity in general being a, uh, there's a certain uh, sentedness, even in vocation, of you're now justified to be sent into something. When you're talking, you're at a seminary, um, Missouri Synod Seminary, so I assume you're not praying with people down there. Trying not to. Trying not to. Okay, good. Um, my Missouri Synod friends will get that. <laughs> but uh, but the sendedness here we're talking about, I'm guessing most of the people in this program are pastors. Uh, it's an interesting, actually that's part of the, the favorite part of the course, um, you know, with uh, the way that uh, Fort Wayne sets itself up, they draw in uh, guys from all over the world. Uh, most of them, I would say, are pastors. Even Canada? Uh, even Canada. Uh, I think there's one guy from Canada, but we don't count him. The most evangelical of all the countries. <laughs> but, you know, that is actually the favorite part of the course. Um, you know, it's not all Lutherans. It's not all pastors. Um, there are some other people in there from different um, uh, disciplines, things like that, whatever. Uh, but, uh, you know, you got guys from uh, South Korea, uh, in doing the work there, mostly Presbyterian uh, in that. I've got guys from 
um, Ekana Jesus, which is an 8 million uh, person Lutheran church body in Ethiopia, uh, guys from South Africa, Nigeria, Madagascar, uh, this guy from, um, um, oh, where's he from? Bulgaria? And uh, he's he deals with gypsies uh, and, the and bringing the gospel to, to gypsies. Um, guys from Brazil. Uh, so you just get a bunch of neat, unique perspectives uh, on mission uh, because things that we don't necessarily deal with in Western culture, all of this stuff is growing as the world changes. Uh, like the, the guys in Madagascar have some awesome stories about uh, there really isn't a conversion over there that doesn't also involve um, exorcism. Exorcism is a big deal. Uh, a big part of their church body is having these guys uh, that are uh, called shepherds, and they specialize in uh, helping people with issues related to exorcism. And you go to the guys from uh, South Korea, uh, for a, a big part of them, their heart is on how do we get the gospel into North Korea. Um, guys uh, kind of in the central part of Africa, um, you know, uh, Ethiopia, Nigeria, those guys are on the front lines of dealing with uh, Islam and radical Islam and the, some of the persecution that comes with that. Um, you know, you just have a whole mix of, like I mentioned, the guy from, from Europe uh, dealing with the, with the gypsies. Uh, one guy the Roma. is yeah. One guy's from Lebanon. He lives in Chicago, uh, but he actually. It was I would just a, like to say the Let the Bird Fly officially says the Roma. The Roma. Okay, I'll go with that <laughs> from now on. And uh, uh, one guy from Lebanon. He was a former uh, militant Islam guy, and uh, was training to be a, a sniper. And he uh, he left that. Uh, interestingly enough, he left that with a, a vision. Visions are big in Islam. He had a vision of. And this is an interesting thing to maybe unpack at some point too, because. I've I've heard that in uh is it Berlin where the the Zelk or whoever it is is having a lot of former or Muslims converting to Christianity that uh, it's very common to have all, all over Europe uh, to have visions uh, that are attached to this yeah Uwe Simonetto a friend of the 1517 legacy project uh uh, has written, uh, I believe, a couple articles on that. Yeah, it's fascinating to to talk to the to these guys because it is a big deal, um, especially in in conversions from Islam to Christianity. There are uh, just a number of stories, including this guy, where they have these visions, and and the visions are interesting because they're different so than maybe we think. So the churches are giving them hallucinogenic. Yes, right? there's a lot of drugs involved. Um, but uh, <laughs> that, the that vision, was a joke. <laughs> the visions tend to be this kind where they they. A Jesus, typically, sometimes Mary, which like is a little Woodstock bit... like a Woodstock communion service. It's, it, it's great. We have a great time. A lot of uh, smoke and weed and all kinds of stuff goes on. What was it? Do also not, a joke. Do not take the brown acid. <laughs> was that the Woodstock thing? Um, but, you know, Jesus always directs them. You know, the, the thought is, you know, Jesus comes and says, go ask this uh, Christian person or pastor about this verse of the Bible. Uh, so it's not a conversion by vision. But it's Jesus Christ is the story, sending them to engage somebody on a, a, a gospel passage in the Bible. Uh, so that's a it's a fascinating thing I'm learning more about, and that's you know that's a part of missiology. Uh, you know we come from a, a you know of course a Western uh, mindset and a Western way of dealing with things, and you know just the study of missiology broadens your view to you know today, but also through the course of church history to how the gospel has advanced. Uh, and even as we talked about in our uh, little devotion at the beginning, uh, how the gospel translates across cultures uh, and and finds its way in, in a number of different contexts. Uh, and that's an important part of carrying out mission.
Yeah, I always thought about, uh, you know, visions and miracles and demon possession, <laughs> those kind of paranormal things. Um, and, and we kind of scoff at that in the Western world. And, and I think that we're rightly skeptical for this reason, that the devil probably is going to use greed <laughs> and sex and other things, pride. Um, so and in, even some vices. And various vices, but also some intellectual... Uh, pride. That was a joke too, Mike. If you want to interject that in 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 the Western world, but in, in other parts of the world and other times, the devil's maybe greater tactic is to do some sort of demon possession stuff like that, and so it makes sense that the spirit would work in different ways in different times in different places, and so you can have that balance where, um, okay, so maybe that probably wasn't a picture of the Virgin Mary on your you know your grilled cheese sandwich um we can be skeptical of that but and yet why you always bash on me about that (laughs) and (laughs) then but then also accept um these wonderful stories but mike Um, don't you think too is there maybe an aspect of in the west it's not that these things don't happen but maybe we downplay the demonic too i think with the rise of you know we can diagnose um physical mental all sorts of conditions that people suffer from and i think we maybe forget that the cross in a Christian's life or even um, what the devil uses to inflict people outside of faith is oftentimes something that's a material, natural, explainable thing. So what you're saying, Wade, is that there is we need a better understanding of the connection between the spiritual and the and the what? I think I am the saying physical? that the physical, yeah. I think we explain away I think because things have um, because we can we can explain things as natural phenomenon that we deny a metaphysical or a, uh, a spiritual aspect behind it. And I think any of us who have been in the parish long enough know that sometimes there's someone who's really suffering with a diagnosable thing or whatever the case might be, um, an addiction where at the same time we can say that's also being used to the detriment of their faith or to keep them from the faith. And so... Um, you know, I don't I don't think it's just to say in the third world or the second world these things happen more. I think it's also to say, to their credit, maybe there's more of an awareness that um, the material, material and physical, the spiritual and whatever, are not as divorced, and I think C.S. Lewis gets at this, as divorced as we might think they are. Well, no, I, I would totally agree. I think it's a, it's a both-hand situation. Mike is not holding his two hands on the side of the mic like... He's trying to we project his voice like he's shouting. Brian, can you confirm this for me? Yes. We're trying. I'm trying lovely. to. Uh, Especially against the background of his beautiful orange shirt. Yeah. <laughs> trying to. But it is. Like, he's touching his nose with both index fingers and then projecting into the mic. We don't have a... Yeah, I'm just trying to make sure that I'm right in the mic. You're Oh, you, you're in the mic, I, I would say. <laughs> but no, that's fascinating what you said. Brian. Well, you know, missiology you. is, you know, it's proven that for me, and I think it's its why it has a great place in theology. Um, you know, there's a missiologist named Nussbaum that calls missiology the queen of theology. And I think, you know, we're in a place, especially with the globalization of, you know, just the whole world and the movement of uh, different cultures. Uh, what we're talking about here is East and West, and we're still talking about a little bit like there are two separate things. Uh, but East is coming to West, and, and in some ways West is going to East. Uh, and if we're going to have a, a good understanding of how we're going to uh, share the gospel, uh, even in our own communities, you know, uh, we need to have a, a growing understanding. I was just in Detroit. We were talking about Detroit uh, earlier. 
Which was a lovely city. It was beautiful. Thank uh, you. The downtown is absolutely great. The rest of it, hey, we'll just, leave Let's that. just stop with what you said. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you have uh, the growing uh, Muslim prop population there, and you have... The uh, largest, I believe, outside the Middle East is the metro Detroit area for uh, yeah. Mid-Eastern, Middle Eastern population, especially um, Arab population. Bo- yeah. Both Christian and, and Muslim, too. Very large Chaldean population, Christian population, yeah. And, you know, just missiology is going to help, I think, our, our, our theological training uh, if we if we do this right, to just broaden it and also prepare us for just 21st century realities uh, and openness to, to engage like the guys like I have in class on what's going on there. We're used to, in the West, we're used to Christianity historically kind of being at the center of our culture. Uh, and even in the West, Christianity is now being pushed to the peripheries. And we, I don't think as a people we yet know how to react to that. Uh, you know, we're not the dominant uh, force that we once and were. And I think this plays in a, sorry for the eschatology episode, though. Um, but, yeah, I think this is very important. Sorry, go ahead, Brian. Well, I was just going to say, you know, like if you go then, if you go to Ethiopia, if you go to South Korea, if you go to China and, uh, or Madagascar and you engage these guys, they, their whole life, their whole ministry, their whole growing in, in the Christian faith has been on the periphery. And there's just so much that we can learn about them uh, to, to deal with 21st century allies. We have Islamic people moving in their communities. Now our communities aren't even just, you know, even... You know, this place like we're talking about Detroit. We say Judeo-Christian as a as a given in America, but it's not. It's yeah. not, and so we can be informed. And these people coming are not necessarily enemies, or even you know, it. These are souls for whom Christ died. Yeah. yeah. And how do you engage them? Uh, apologetics becomes a lot bigger thing. Uh, you don't in just 21st retreat century. to your people, but I think this is a good thing, Brad. How do you reach? God is sending you a mission field. How do you reach them? Right. And, yeah, I mean, and that's what we're struggling with in, in Western America still. You have, kind of have the, the liberal mindset that's like, hey, well, we got we, we, we to just, you know, kind of just uh, whatever, broaden everything out, bring everything in, include everybody, and it waters down Christianity to the point of nothing. But then you also have others, and maybe we are tempted towards this, where we just bunker down. Uh, and we just kind of make this little enclave. We build walls around ourselves because uh, we're trying to keep the evil forces out. Uh, missiology... Uh, especially missiology informed by the broader global Christian uh, community uh, can learn how to engage them and bring the gospel that the peop- these people need. And I think uh, this gets to the inclusive and exclusive nature of things. Um, you know, the inclusive reaction is to downplay the exclusivity of Christ as the one name under heaven given to man by which we should be saved. And the exclusive impulse is to say, well, these aren't our people, and then just to retreat to, you know, we're willing to literally watch our uh, slowly trickle until Christ returns. Yeah. You know, until, you know, the joke is told about the one guy who's the one guy left who's the faithful Lutheran with his wife, and he's not so sure about his wife. <clears throat> um, you know, both impulses can be there. And I think what you're getting at is a good thing of how do we maintain... Well, and, and we see this, I think, in Western Europe, but we see this in America, too, that with the mainline denominations. If your message becomes inclusive to the point that there's no rationale or purpose for it anymore, there's nothing to offer. If it becomes exclusive to the point that there's no opportunity for someone to be eased into it and to come to understand it without being, you know, um, well, we've all had this. You're instructing someone and 
in the parish and they say something wrong. You don't jump on the, the, the illustration always is in classes when people say like, my relative died and they became an angel. <laughs> well, yeah. at a funeral, you don't jump on someone and say, angels are less than people. That would be a demotion. This is not what the Bible teaches. You sometimes just let it go and you say, I'm going to wait for the teachable, the teachable moment. Um, so I, if I'm hearing you right, and correct me if I'm wrong because I often am, is there has to be a balance between how do we protect the truth of the gospel um, how do we protect what makes us viable and purposeful and why God put the church here, but how at the same time do we avoid, um, or how, not avoid, but how do we actually do what the Great Commission talks about? How do we engage those who don't yet have that that understanding? That um, People sometimes who, who don't even have the language to understand Christianity, and I have to understand that, I have to imagine this comes up in missiology too, like, sometimes there is no one-to-one, like, there's just no vicarious atonement. Mm-hmm. There's cultures that, that that language just doesn't transfer. What's the appropriate, appropriate amount of patience? How do you, um, to what extent does the culture inform the images from the scriptures you use? Um... But yeah, I'm throwing a lot at you, but how do you balance inclusive and inclus- exclusive? And I would say, at some point, I would like us to talk about how uh, maybe the Bible, and this is, because this is not, with Islam, this is an issue, the Quran is not meant to be in the native language everywhere. Yeah. The scriptures are. I mean, this is just the nature of the scriptures. Christianity never, I mean, it just, this is, tell these stories in the people's language. Um, there's no... Uh, a Christian has to learn, you know, Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew. But one thing I would like your thoughts on, and this can come later, and if I'm throwing it under the bus, then tell me, is uh, I have to imagine in certain cultures, certain stories have a lot more power, if that makes sense. Well, certainly, and even just storytelling, you know, depending on certain cultures, you have interesting things, you know. Uh, missiology is multidisciplinary, and it, and it needs to be, and it's something that we, you know, maybe need to have a little more flexibility in our in our theological training. Uh, and and I to be been, fair, it's not on the radar of a lot of. I mean, it's new that missiology is a thing in confessional Lutheranism. Yeah, and it's new, uh, you know, across the world. I mean, missiology as a, a discipline or a field uh, really finds its its start in the in the late nineteen century. Uh, you know, and, and that was a, sort of its heyday. Uh, you got um, you got big names um, like Gustav Vornek uh, in in Germany. Um, uh, Duff was a guy in Scotland. Uh, all these guys were 19th century guys. So it's not just a new thing for Lutherans; it's a new thing for for Christianity. Um, but it's multidisciplinary. I mean, we've had uh, sort of a luxury in the in uh, Western Christianity of having this sort of us and them mentality. Uh, we've got it, uh, and sometimes we conflate the gospel with, uh, you know, cultural things, uh, and we're going to give it to them. Uh, now, with the, you know, with the, with missiology bringing in this understanding of uh, a you know, multidiscipline sort of thing, and just the globalization, there's a lot where uh, we can grow. Uh, and need to grow in our understanding of the gospel. We're, we're listening to cultures. Uh, we're getting to know what what's uh, in their culture, in their language. Uh, we're studying things, sociological things, uh, anthropological things. 
Uh, and we're finding by listening to people how it is that we bring the gospel to them. I mean, we know some of these are simple things uh, from, you know, the Acts uh, where the Apostle Paul brings the gospel message uh, and it's tailored to uh, his his audience. Is he talking to Greeks? Is he talking to Jews? Uh, is he talking to people with a, an awareness of, uh, you know, the scripture or, or none whatsoever? Uh, and so missiology starts with uh, God's word. It starts with theology, uh, and that's where it, it, its message is grounded on a, a God who sends Jesus Christ into the world as our Savior and the Holy Spirit to bring that uh, faith to people. Uh, but it also, missiology stands kind of at a place where it's, I suppose, kicking theology uh, a little bit to remind, you know, theology isn't something you study in a vacuum uh, just to know things. Uh, theology always needs to be engaged with how am I learning about God who sends in order to bring him to these different contexts, different cultures. Uh, going back to that, things about visions, um, I find it fascinating that some of these stories um, are go to a pastor who, about this specific passage or whatever. You know, visions can, visions can be demonic. Visions can be whatever. Visions can be the brain making making trouble. It, it, it finally has to come down to, to, to the word and uh, that, that's where the Spirit's going to work. And uh, if, if Jesus Christ has to use a vision to get somebody to the Word, then he will, of course. Um, and and it's, it's, it's not a feeling, it's not a vision, but it's finally the, the, the Word of God. Maybe, let, let me ask you this question. Well, and and, and Mike, is there something in language to that and a culture that gives um, particular... Uh, or that really puts a lot of stock in visions, it would make sense for God to speak in such a way to that culture. I think in our own, that's something you go to a psychologist about. But but there is, I think, a language, uh, a linguistic aspect to this. And both, that's to both our points originally, that uh, in some cultures the devil's going to use this and that God's going to use use some of the same, same type tactics, um, obviously with the gospel rather than... Uh, something that's uh, anti-gospel, but also that in the West we are maybe so um, so quick to put everything down to a scientific thing, to a to a poll, to a statistic, and that that's true of just every every discipline on the university campus. Um, well, yeah, I mean, if you Satan's pragmatic, he, whatever he can do to get a soul into hell, uh, if he. You know, if he can scare the, the, the bejesus out of you in an animistic sort of culture, you know, then he's won the day. But if he can make uh, spiritual things and in Christ himself be hidden underneath all kinds of rational and spiritual explanations, uh, he's also won the day. Whatever he can do to push Christ away uh, is what he's going to do. And, you know, again, in the West, we're used to, you know, if we think of charismatic sort of stuff, uh, you know, we're used to charismatic sort of stuff that, uh, you know, deals, I suppose, with a couple different things. Uh, I'm going to do charismatic stuff to supposedly heal me of some kind of earthly uh, ill, you know, a broken leg, a sickness, uh, a mental issue, whatever. And we're also used to charismatic things that are used primarily to prove I'm one of God's uh, r- real people. But if you start to look at some of these issues, you know, charismatic stuff, uh, demonic possession, uh, an exorcism in, say, Madagascar, or uh, you look at these things in, you know, in, in the Islamic world, you know, conversions of Christianity where there's visions related, you know, it's every one of them, as you study these things, 
uh, are related right directly to conversion to Christ through the gospel. Uh, like, like I said, when I was talking about, you know, in Madagascar, every, every conversion is connected to an exorcism. And, and I suppose you say vice versa. It's not about just throwing out the demon. It's about sharing the gospel with this person and bringing them to faith. Uh, it's not about proving that I have some sort of power over demons. It's about bringing this person to faith in Jesus. And the same thing with the visions. The visions aren't about, hey, I have this vision, so I, I, I've got a, an elite position. Yeah, yeah. I've got an elite position in, in, the, in the kingdom of God. But it's about, it, they're fascinating because they're always, again, sending people to the gospel. Uh, to preachers. To preachers. If I can get a little radical Lutheran here. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, it, it, we have to start to rethink as we're engaging in a, in a global society where East is moving to West, West is moving to East, and they're on our front doorstep. Uh, we have to rethink uh, what is behind charismatic issues, uh, not just a you know, sort of a blanket dismissal of it because it doesn't fit a scientific rational mindset. Uh, or, you know, theologically speaking, uh, it's, it's, it's taking the place of faith uh, or some kind of works righteousness or something like that or uh, theology of glory. Uh, it really is a theology of the cross. We're bringing people through exorcism uh, or vision uh, to the cross of Jesus Christ and, and, where, the, where the Spirit works faith. And I think you see that in the Gospels. That's how Jesus does it. He's... More take me at my word. These miracles, yes, prove his divinity. Yes, he does it out of compassion, but it, it's it's not to show off. It's not to make, okay, you have now these higher Christians, the apostles have these, these miracles for themselves, but rather the it, it, they're, in, they're in servitude to the gospel in that way. And so uh, my question to you uh, is... <clears throat> I'm interested in the classes that you take. Uh, you know, is is there something from the history of the church where you learn from the great missionaries um, in different cultures and different times that you can then apply to today? Yeah, there's. I mean, the classes. You know, in your missiology, you talk about that. It's it's integrative and it's also you know it stands alone. It's independent. Uh, and that shows in, in the training there. I mean, the classes, uh, you know, uh, run through the whole, say, gamut of, of theology, but it also has things that are very much independent. Uh, so I've had classes that just look at issues of poverty uh, and urban. Uh, I've also had classes that are kind of overarching classes about the Missio Dei or missiology today. Uh, there are uh, a couple of major courses that look at, you know, mission in the Old Testament, New Testament, and also uh, one that I haven't gotten to yet, although I've done the, my own studies and I'm incorporating it into my teaching. Uh, and that's just the, the history of mission, which has one of, been one of the more eye-opening things for me in my, you know, I grew up Lutheran, grade school, Lutheran high school, of course, uh, MLC in the seminary. Um, history for us is, at least in my experience, has been by and large taught from this sort of, you know, just Western set. You know, the, the, the church starts in Jerusalem. It this follows, is his story that leads to Wauwatosa. Yeah, well, ba basically, yeah. yeah, it follows Paul to Rome, and then it works its way up through, through Europe, and it, it, it meanders over to the United States of America, and then ultimately it ends in Wauwatosa in, in the wells, and it's, a, it's a, basically a story of, uh, you know, doctrine, then controversy, and then councils, and reform, and all these sorts of things. All of that's a very vital par part of, um, you know, church history, but what never really gets mentioned, and, and 
um, what, what I found fascinating is just the broader history of watching uh, how many stories there are of the Christian message going out uh, to Africa, uh, some of the fascinating things there. Of, you know, uh, rarely does the, the um, Christian faith get stomped out by persecution, but what I've been able to see so far is in North Africa, uh, it actually did, and, and why that happened, uh, you know, of course, God only knows. But then you watch it go into to India, uh, you watch it go uh, into China multiple different times and into the East. Uh, you know, you have Europe, uh, and then, of course, in recent times, then you have the things that have gone into South America. Uh, you know, especially in, in my context at, at Wisco, where we have, you know, all nations underneath our roof, uh, I think it's vital for the Christian church to have a broader understanding of the, the whole of the history of Christianity. How has Christianity engaged all these different cultures? Uh, it's It always seems to have this, you know, it makes some leaps forward, uh, and then, you know, Satan works and, and drives it back. But it, the story is almost always a little nuanced, a little different. Uh, and if we don't more fully engage the history of the church through the eyes of mission, uh, I don't think we're going to be ready for 21st century realities. Uh, you know, how do we, you know, it's not just this story of Christianity working its way through Germany and eventually over to Wisconsin, um, but the Christian message has gone out into all the world, uh, even at the time of the apostles, uh, with ebbs and, and, and flows and ebbs and, 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 and starts and stops uh, in all different places. And it's, it's just an interesting read and it's an interesting study that will broaden uh, our full picture of how do you get the gospel out uh, to the nations, what things to watch out for, what things have, you know, say, worked, uh, and what things have ultimately driven Christianity out. Maybe to that point, maybe you want to just, uh, for especially well, our lay readers... And wait for a second. Just hold on. Lay well, all right, I, I have a thought on what he said. If you're going to a okay, question... Okay, go ahead, Wade. Well, I just want to say... It's your podcast. Well, no, you mentioned North Africa, <laughs> and I would say one of my things that Mike and I even talked about with... In the Wing It series, as with late antique North African culture, there was this kind of marriage to the Roman imperial world and culture. And I wonder how much of that under persecution gave way because it was not an explicit Christianity, but it was a Christianity tied to the culture, if that makes sense. Um, and I think there's something worth exploring. And this is separate, but. Um, the vitality of Christianity, especially under persecution, when it is not wed too closely um, to the dominant political power or cultural mm. power. So I'll just throw that out there, Mike, because we, we mentioned it before, but go ahead now with, with your question. Well, just a practical question, especially for our, our lay listeners. Um, I keep so saying there, lay today. Is there, a, is there a couple books that would be a nice primer not just on missiology but also the history of missions i think would be instructive for a lot of people to say how did how did this work and how did this fail in japan and different Uh, places i i can't claim to be an expert yet but uh, one that's really worked well for me there's a uh, it's the history of mission by stephen neal uh is a great read uh to get and probably because maybe he more than uh, anybody else has really worked hard to show the the full history of the, you know the expansion of Christianity throughout the world. So he spends time, uh, a lot of time, on you know places that, again in my history Christian history training, uh, never even you know heard even a word or two about. Uh, so Stephen Neal is one. Um, there's a Bosch 
uh, Transforming uh, Mission, I think is the name of his book. Uh, and he's got, he's got um, I haven't read his, but he's got a lot on, on, on the history of mission. Uh, but that's just a good overall read. Um, Encountering the Theology of Mission, and there's a couple different authors of that, but Ott is the one that comes to mind. Uh, those would be ones that I would get. But the, the, the number one place I'd go, uh, and this is how I ended up at um, Fort Wayne. One was Wade here saying, hey, you should check out Fort Wayne because I had no idea that the program even existed. But uh, Dr. Uh, Detlef Schultz, uh, great teacher, a lot of fun, great class. Uh, he wrote a book uh, called Mission from the Cross. And uh, I think every Lutheran should have it. It is the only comprehensive uh, missiological book from a Lutheran perspective. And I would say he does an excellent job. Uh, I think any, uh, I don't even want to say any missionary, uh, any Christian pastor should have it on his shelf and, and read it through because he has a great way of setting up the theological basis, uh, but also showing, as I mentioned before, the, the multidisciplinary uh, nature of mission work uh, and missiology uh, that we, you know, maybe we sometimes get a little bit hesitant to jump into. Uh, you know, how do we how do we look at culture? What what's a proper view of contextualization? Uh, and it's a it's a good solid book. Uh, it's a great read. I think again, every Lutheran should have it on their shelf. Brian, you might. Uh, I'll just briefly note for our listeners. Some will appreciate this. Um, that you did give me credit for pointing you to Fort Wayne. Yes. Okay, good. Um, but uh, you mentioned something earlier that I think is important, and you mentioned um, the American urban context. And I think you could mention the American urban context, the American rural context. Um, there are just a, a number of settings in America. I mean, you, Appalachia, you could, you could run through the list. Um, that when we talk missiology, we're not just talking how to deal with Moroccans or, um, you know, with, uh, I'm just Pakistanis. But even in our own country, as, as we have seen, um, both globalization, but also, uh, would it be, what would you say? Parochialization? I mean, regions. And, and regions becoming more internal. Um, there is something, too, when we talk missiology, as people in Milwaukee or Wauwatosa or West Dallas, or if you're in Milwaukee, pick, it, pick a suburb or, or the city. Um, missiology is not just something for people who want to be concerned with the gospel abroad. But I think um, in your own experience and as you've kind of talked about today, there are important missiological concerns for the gospel here. Right in our neighborhoods. Yeah, I mean, again, moving away from an us-to-them sort of mentality uh, and maybe definitely maybe shelving our maps with pins on it uh, would be another good idea. Or categories. <laughs> but, um, you know, the the the, the nation that, that is sending out the most missionaries right now is India. Uh, and uh, they have, a, I suppose, a little bit of an advantage in that because they're just within their country they have so many different ethnic groups that they're sending out missionaries by the bundles just to different parts of India. Um, the second largest or, or nation that's sending out the most missionaries, and these ones, they would actually be number one sending them out, say, internationally, is uh, South Korea. Uh, you know, we are not even on the map 
uh, you know, the United States in particular, as far as uh, leading and sending out missionaries. In fact, we're receiving just as many or more than than we're sending out. Especially in the Roman Catholic Church, finding priests. I oh, mean, very much so. A- Anglican too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, just you know, if you take away the us versus them sort of thing, uh, missiology for us it needs to be something that's ultimately is going to become about sending out missionaries. Uh, you know, uh, formally with quals and things like that. That's still a part of that. But rather than uh, uh, the average Christian member seeing it as about, you know, this is what they're doing over there in, you know, Pakistan or whatever the places that you different mentioned, uh, what's going on in our own neighborhood? Uh, not only, um, say, cross-culturally, but maybe even especially cross-socioeconomic sort of things. Uh, I have a, an African-American friend from... Um, from Chicago, he's a, a, a Lutheran pastor there, and he's a, you know, his biggest deal, he said, is not have anything to do with with black and white. Uh, it's middle class black reaching out with the gospel to uh, lower class, uh, and just you know having a broader understanding that the mission field is right there, and how can I grow in my ability to see, you know, to make my, you know, apologetics is a big deal to to make my faith my own, to understand what's going on. Uh, in my own heart, what do I really believe about God's word? But also, what's the worldview of my neighbor, which is going to be radically different, even if it's just a, a Western thing, like a postmodern mindset. But you also are bringing in again, in some of the things we mentioned, you've got uh, people coming from from Islam, Arabic countries. Uh, you've got, you know, just in Milwaukee, uh, you've got, uh, you know, you've got people coming from Burma. Uh, you've got people coming from from all different places in East Asia, South America, uh, you know, Central America. People coming with a whole different mindset, uh, a whole different upbringing in Christianity, uh, and we have a whole lot to learn just on our own doorstep. About here is my mission field. Uh, you mentioned the word vocation, and uh, and that's something that I'm working on. It's just the the close marriage there is between uh, vocation and mission, uh, that each one of us in our vocations, in our going, you know, go back to Matthew chapter 28, uh, we're encountering people just in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our, in our, in our day-to-day life uh, that come from a whole different mindset, whole different worldview. Uh, how do I engage them? How do I listen to them to know where they're coming from? <clears throat> and again, not see it as us to them. I've got to transform their whole mindset and culture, but how do I bring Jesus to them where they're at? And I think... And I'm probably projecting here or maybe setting you up for something that's not fair, but the us-them dynamic to me is just, um, is the word inimical, I-N-I-M-I-C, is, is that a word, inimical, incompatible with the gospel. Um, I get when it comes to doctrine and, uh, you know, we have to demarcate by our confessions we're not Calvinists, we're not Arminians, we're not Anabaptists, we're not Papists, whatever the case may be. But I do think there's something very problematic when in our normal thinking, when it comes to the gospel, we are willing to fall back on or deflect to us versus them. Um, that's not what our church looks like. That's that's not our people. That's... um whatever the case may be. And I think you're getting at a very good thing, Brian, and, and you don't have to unpack it if I'm setting you up, but um, 
I just, you read the New Testament, and Jesus seems completely irresponsible with the gospel. Like, and you read Mark, and he's just giving it to all the people he's not supposed to give it to. And we come from a background as confessional Lutherans that I love and cherish, where we have a confession that we want to maintain, we want to uphold, we think is true, and I wouldn't be a confessional Lutheran if I didn't think that. But also, as you've mentioned, theology boils down to missiology. We want it to get to people. It's not just my inheritance or yours. Um, I came from outside. We want that to be as uh, accessible, maybe as possible to everyone without compromising what we have to say. Um, what is the contribution of missiology perhaps today to uh, a con- you know, confessional Lutherans as a whole, Missouri oh. Wells, you pick, or any church body that had Orthodox Presbyterians. Oh. They have well, a confession they want to maintain, but at the same time, um, Jesus has given it to them to give it to people. In your studies, in your experience, where is the balance, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I think we we set up a number of sort of, you know, like us, them, you know. You guys have been in, you know, in the parish as well. We go to pastor's conferences. Uh, Another one that's, you know, kind of related along those lines is, you know, you go to these conferences and, and if you're planning those, you have the guys that are begging for, I want something more theological, and then somebody else is saying, we need something more uh, practical. If you go into seminary uh, training, you, what do you have? The, the four disciplines where you have, you know, exegetical, systematic, uh, what is it, practical, and uh, which one am I missing? Uh, and we have these, so we have these divisions. Historical. Which, oh, historical, yeah. You're, <laughs> I'm sorry that I forgot that one. It's all good. <laughs> uh, but we have these sort of divisions, uh, and I think it can kind of stunt uh, some of our work when it comes to mission. Missiology, uh, I think, has an important place nowadays. There's a guy, that Bosch guy I mentioned before, I think he's the one who calls uh, the missiologist the gadfly. Um, you know, the thought that comes to my mind is the missiology stands somewhere between uh, God's call to mission and our, also our, our God's call to be faithful to his word, to theology. Uh, and the, the missiologist is this gadfly uh, that stands in the middle and needs to be a little bit you know, evangelically irritating to both sides. Uh, you can have your, your mission guy who's like, we got to get this out there, we got to get this out there, uh, almost to the ne- neglect of the word. And, and what he's going out there with is sort of this empty husk. But then you have the theologian on the other side that's so you know ingrained, and I got to study this theology, I got to study this theology, uh, you know, and uh, you know that it becomes a sort of dead seed. It's not you're studying for the sake of studying. I, and the, the missiologist needs to stand at the middle for Lutheran confessional Lutheranism uh, to be a little bit evangelically irritated. Uh, to the to the mission guy, hey, we need to have the the, 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 the kernel of this needs to be grounded in the Word of God. Uh, to the theologian who's just getting caught up in in the study of it and the faithfulness to the you know the, the Eber correctness of it all. Uh, no, we only study theology because it's about a a, a God who sends. Uh, he's always saying he sends his son, he sends a spirit, he sends the church. If we're not studying for the sake of getting that gospel message out, you know, even like if you think about it, you know, is where you're studying whatever it is, historical, exegetical, systematic, 
uh, you know, practical, always asking the question, you know, where does your, what you're teaching, uh, you know, say in a seminary training, where is what you're teaching, how does that relate to the mission of the church? And if there's not a good answer to it, why are you teaching it? Uh, and, you know, the same thing to the mission person. If, you know, you can do all the studies of sociology, anthropology, and things that you want, which are vital, and we mentioned those before, but how does that relate to the truths of God's Word, especially the gospel? Um, and I think that's where the missiology or missiologist has a place, especially in all of Christianity, but in confessional Lutheranism, to be that sort of singular voice of this is what we're about and kind of kicking both ways. Being, you had to be a little bit, uh, again, evangelically irritating uh, to say, well, what, you know, why are we studying theology? And then to the, missiolo- the, 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 the missionary, what are we actually bringing out there? No, I'm digging this, Brian, and I think it's a great compliment that neither Mike or I are interrupting a lot, but Mike, this does prompt something I want to throw to you in a second here, is um, I think what Brian's after really hits on a lot of key points, and I think this is kind of a flashpoint where stuff will come up of, well, we engage a different culture, um, what does worship look like, what does engagement look like, whatever the case might be. And what I'd kind of be interested to see, what you have to say is, um, I mean, you teach the worship worship class, and I'm guessing you have students who say, well, this is just German, or this is just whatever. <clears throat> how would you, uh, how does what Brian has to say today fit with the liturgy we've inherited. Sure. Uh, first of all, I've been I've been on my phone looking up what you said about uh, miss, missiology standing in the in the in the middle ground there, uh, reminding me of something A. L. Barry once said of the Missouri Synod. Of the Missouri Synod, and I I Googled it to make sure that I had <laughs> the name right. And I'm looking at he was this typing very laboriously. Did you Did you know that he started at uh, Springfield? Which moved to Fort that, Wayne yeah. and then finished at ELS and then, yes, yes. Finished at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary in 1956. No, he was in all the synods, yeah. I did not know that. Anyway, um, I, I think there's a false dichotomy that comes up that says that, uh, you know, worship is something that if you just worship is either old or contemporary. American or German or. Yeah, something like that. And, and it's just, it's just not accurate. And, uh, we've gone through it that it has its roots in so many different cultures. It's it's probably one of the most multicultural things uh, that uh, we have in our Western civilization. I would argue, um, and of course, there's theological there's theological uh, concerns where sometimes you say, well you're just being German or whatever. Well, I'm not being German because actually what we're talking about is North African, but whatever. But we're, we're we're trying to be, we're trying not to be Baptist or we're trying not to be Roman Catholic. We're trying to, and, and we're not tr- trying to be Lutheran. We're just trying to be faithful to the Christian message that has always, has always been there. And so I, I don't think that being quote unquote liturgical and we've talked about that how everybody's liturgical is something that is um uh being liturgically minded let's just say being concerned with those things and being concerned with missiology 
are mutually exclusive. I totally disagree with that. And it doesn't, not everything looks the same everywhere, but <clears throat> there can be a similarity. Uh, yeah, and it, I, I think that here, here's the real problem, is that especially in America when we talk about, let's say, this kind of worship versus something that is deemed old and stodgy or whatever, first of all, both sides are, are misunderstanding uh, uh both sides but it sometimes what seems to be cool and fresh is actually probably really really exclusive it tends to be white <laughs> upper class suburban and i i don't and i i do rub i rub some people the wrong way with that when i because it's devoid of the theology of the cross it makes God to be something of, um, oh, I don't know, just kind of this old grandfather in the sky kind of thing. Uh, it tends to be a little bit first article Christianity. God has this plan for you and what a beautiful, what a beautiful creation we have and stuff like that. And, and what a beautiful creation in, you are. In the third world, <laughs> they look at that and say, what a cute God you have, and and I, I say this, and I shouldn't say this, and I've, I've I've rubbed people the wrong way, and I said that's all good if you're a white girl from Waukesha, right. um, and so I I just don't this false dichotomy between okay here is the historic liturgy versus okay this is what's going to attract attract people. It's just not always the case. It's just not always the case, and I, I get a little worked up about this when. When we go into an African-American context, we say, well, you have to sing African-American spirituals, which many of them are great and fine, that's, and that's, but a lot of them are Baptist. And there's some, and, and it's, it's almost demeaning to say, well, these people need to only have their songs. But then when it comes to an Hispanic situation, who maybe are used to more of Roman Catholic stuff, well, then we have to, we have to get rid of that. Now, both can be true. Both of the opposite can be true too, because, uh, where's Pentecostalism really taking off? Well, that's in, in South America and Central America, where it is such a contrast to the institution church, institutional church. But the truth can also be said of, uh, urban setting, um, uh, um, of African Americans who were brought up in a Baptist kind of context. So it's it just, it's, it's more complicated then I think that surface sort of um, shallow understanding of worship, there's some deep meaning in there. With that said, I think we can expand ourselves quite a bit. And uh, um, there, there are some settings of the Gloria and the Kyrie and stuff like that that probably would be more in line with gospel-type music or music that would not be Bach and Tadas. And I think you can do it well. I really think you can do it well. And, and, and so the solution is not throw out the liturgy and do something contemporary, which almost always means Southern Baptist, white suburban kind of Christian rock, right? Fine, whatever. But I think you can do it well and maintain the Gloria and the Kyrie and maintain the flow of the Christian uh, story of Christ in the, the day or, or in the Sunday service, the divine service. I think you can do it. And, and I don't know that we've ever thought that we can 
find that middle ground. And I think, Brian, I'll just briefly explain what I was setting up there, but to what extent in your experience is uh, we have these other churches, these other experiences, we have these other settings in America, um, and I think my God at it uh, is to what extent can we get the white suburban fighting over their preferences? I mean, I think there is the we're going to be the super high church that can afford to be that and has the luxury to be that. Or we're going to be the, uh, you know, all of our boomer parents who never made it big, but they're going to sing Mamas and Papas, Jesus songs. Um, to what extent do you think the extor- the historic experience of the church with worship, as Mike is trying to say, can make its way into missiology. Um, I mean, I'll admit, I had to call it at a certain point to a church in a different country um, to have an active role in forming pastors, whatever the case would be. And I remember calling and just saying, like, having a discussion about, so, like, are we teaching Lutheran hymnody, whatever the case might be, and the response was, oh, yeah, we sing Silent Night at Christmas. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, that's great, but that's not what I mean. Um, but I think there is, on, on various sides, you know, this is what the church looks like. Um, and that's the only call I've ever had abroad. But as you've worked on stuff... You've mentioned the gospel, and this is what has to be the exportable thing. And I, and the older I get, that's the more I care about. I, I, I don't get worked up about as, other stuff as much, but how do you, um, how do you inculcate a respect for what a uh, church across time and boundaries is found helpful? How, how are we not just exporting our culture? Or our uh, institution, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, you know, at least for me, and I mean, it's not the only way, but I think missiology uh, calls for, a, you know, a deep sense of humility and an understanding of, you know, again, the broadness of the Christian church now and over the course of history. I think uh, one, of, one of these missiologists talked about, they said, mission's what we do in the morning, uh, missiology is what we do in the evening. In other words, uh, there's a time for mission work, there's a time for theology, and we also need to have a lot of, uh, allow a serious amount of time. You know, a missiologist is, is great with a drink in his hand at night, reflecting on, you know, what's going on, what's going on in the world, what's going on in the church. Uh, and we need to have the ability to ask tough questions, and the missiologist isn't there to give all the answers. So even just going with Mike's story, yeah, he really has to divorce himself from that. Yeah, I mean, well, so you think of Mike's, you know, Mike's talking about you know worship, uh, and you know being strong enough in our Christian faith and and willing enough to to you know the missiologist asks the question, well, how you know for everything we talk about worship and the historic, the Western Rite and liturgical worship. Uh, whatever you're teaching, uh, whatever we're saying about uh, worship, 
Uh, how does that help serve the Missio Dei? How does that help serve getting the gospel out? That doesn't come with any preset of answers like, well, you, you should go contemporary or you should go this way or that way. But it asks a tough question. So when I'm considering the, the songs, the historic songs of the liturgy, uh, how do those help get out the gospel? Well, first of all, their content's very gospel orientated. Uh, but still the question is there, uh, is that going to serve to bring the gospel to this culture? At the same time, though, and maybe this is you know a caricature, uh, the missionary might be inclined to say, "I got to do what's practical to get the gospel message out there." So I'm gonna I'm gonna change everything. I'm gonna go uh, contemporary, and the missiologist again still stands at the middle and says, "Well, what are you actually bringing to the people? You can change for the context. You can." Uh, you can make some assumptions about, you know, what's best for them or, do, you know, does, uh, you know, whether Hispanic or, or black or Arab or whatever it might be. But how are you still bringing uh, the kernel of Christianity? How are you still bringing the gospel to them? Are you bringing that uh, with what you're doing? So no answers come with that, but the missiologist has to be there. And the, the rest of us need to, to be strong enough to be able to field those questions and not take offense like, I'm, I'm big into the Western Rite, and I'm big into the liturgy. If you ask me a question of how is the liturgy uh, going to actually convey the gospel uh, cr- across this cultural boundary, across this socioeconomic boundary, I can feel that question, and I, I need to seriously reflect on uh, my well, how I'm teaching worship, how I'm conducting worship, uh, to be able to give a good answer to that. And the same for the missionary who wants to change everything. Okay, you want to change everything, but in changing everything, how are you still bringing what we're about? God sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to, to save sinners. And I think that probably brings us to a good point. Um, well, I would say maybe just to follow up that point, when you understand the liturgy as word and meal, the means of grace and everything falls uh, in place there, you can do it a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the liturgy is to be uh, the box that holds these two jewels up, then you're in the right mindset. You know, right. if you're trying to sell something, well, you can't sell God. He refuses to be sold that way. And, and so um, the, the liturgy is seen, and in all things, right, and anything in missiology is going to serve the gospel, and that means serving the means of grace. Right, whether it be baptism, um, uh, the Lord's Supper, or the Word of God. Well, one of the things, and I'll end on this, Brian, unless you have stuff, but one of the things I'm getting is that missiology winning doesn't look like uh, a person winning or a culture winning or a denomination winning or uh, a nation winning. It looks like... uh, the gospel and ears and uh, souls going to heaven. And if I'm reading you right, it, it, it means neither compromising doctrine or practice, but understanding, A, how to communicate doctrine, and B, how practice fits or reflects in that culture. Um, and one of the things for me that's helpful is that that doesn't mean the church looks the same everywhere. It doesn't mean the uh, 
it means being willing to say to people, there's dynamics you don't get in play here. And there's a... Well, and, and I like the local stuff you're bringing up, but it means being able to say, end of the day, your theology is as good as the people it reaches and the, uh, the effect it has, which takes me back to the gospels to be preached. The gospel is for concrete people who are forgiven. And that's not to say doctrine doesn't matter, worship doesn't matter, whatever the case but it is to say people matter, and I'll leave that for you to unpack. But Yeah, I mean, again, I think missiology stands, it tries to be this singular voice to take some of the things that over the last century, really, uh, since we've developed the, kind of that four-part uh, discipline for theological training, it tries to be a unifying uh, principle. Uh, we have our theology and practice. Missiology tries to bring them together. Uh, and missiology, I don't want to set myself up for martyrdom, but missiology kind of, again, that gadfly, almost like, you know, a, a theological, evangelical pain in the butt to, to remind us, no, yes. we need that, yeah. To, to, yes to the Word of God and yes to to theology, but yes also to what is really the heart of theology, and that's a God who sends Christ, the Spirit, and the Church and the world to bring uh, salvation to, to, to sinners, uh, to, to win lost souls. So, uh, you know, Isaiah 54 is a passage that, is really uh, hit on me to really kind of you know ground me and you know what is what is the missiologist cry and Isaiah gets it you know that's that one Isaiah fifty four two I think you know enlarge uh, enlarge your tents and and then he ends up with a strength in your stakes the church has always got to be about uh, how do we enlarge our tent uh, but you can't enlarge a tent uh, if your if the ropes and the and the stakes are are weak. Uh, and so, again, uh, there's a time for theology to make sure those stakes are strong. Uh, but there's always a call from our God in, in the voice of Isaiah saying, hey, we've got to get this gospel out there. This is the whole point of, of theology, uh, a God who sends to save sinners. Well, and I think this is a, a very uh, let the bird fly topic. And uh, all the, our favorite tension points are coming out at this point of a... Uh, is that fair, Mike? I think so. We could both argue right now. I'd win, but... But, I mean, with Brian, like... But what I like is he's saying, end of the day, the missiologist wants us to say what? Let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down Get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a jank I set him up Another round, I'll set him up. Another round, I'll set him up. Another round, one more round won't get me down.